welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I'm going to tell you all about witchcraft in Japan, from foxes to careers for the blind. As always, expect your usual dosage of foul language, but also remember, we're talking about witchcraft, so you know there will be talks about discrimination against women and those deemed of a lower class. So let's get ready for another Human Exception. Ready to go to Japan? Let's rock it. To Japan. All right. So like we said before, um, I was working on witchcraft in Asia, which got really crazy. So I stuck with one country just for this. So that, you know, we weren't here for like three days. So yeah, Japan. So Japanese folklore is full of magical creatures of tales of persons with mystical abilities. And these people aren't referred to as witches per se. The word witch comes from the European vocabulary in a single title that encompasses all manner of people suspected to have mystical powers, as Ellie just wanted to do. And whether or not they actually had mystical powers. Um, in Japan, they have a much larger syllabus of magic and lore, each category referring to specific characteristics, characteristics each with their own stories and relationships with the mere mortal. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to cover a couple different ones just because, like, there wasn't just one straight up witch. Uh, so, the ones I'm going to start with are familiar witches. So, these are there are many witches who have animal companions, but the two most common being those who employ snakes and those who employ foxes. So, fox witches, um, the fox is really a really prominent character in Japanese folklore. You may be familiar with the word kitsune. Um, like, and like I'm trying to even think of what we could even use as a comparison to how much they use fox in their folklore. <laughs> like, I don't know, werewolves or something. But yeah, foxes are a really big deal in their folklore. They've got so many tales about them. Either they represent deities, spirits, or even just the animals itself. Um, so finding the line, though, between kitsune lore and witch lore is nearly impossible because a lot of it kind of blends together. Their like, mythology is just intrinsically in intertwined, and it's just a whole tangle. So, um, I tried to separate as much as the Katsuni stuff out as possible because I'd like to cover Katsuni later because super interesting <laughs> and try to focus on more just the witchcraft side. Um, so yeah, just, just know the Je Japanese foxes, it's a really big thing, rich history, all that. So, and lore foxes can be tricksters, but they can also be faithful guardians, friends, and even lovers. But in most witchcraft stories, foxes serve as a familiar to the witch. During the Edo period, between 1603 and 1867, this was the height of superstition in Japan. So tales of witches and their fox companions became quite prevalent. There's two ways that someone may obtain a fox as a familiar. Through inheritance or through a deal. So I'm going to talk about the latter first. Um, known as Kitsune Suke or Kitsune Moke. These are fox witches who made a deal with, or, or these are fox witches who made a deal with a fox so that it would enter their employ. Typically, it's in exchange for food or daily care in return for the fox's magical powers. Now, it's important to note that while some of these agreements were mutual, there were also many tales where the witch tricks the fox into their service. There's even something known as the Itsuna Rite, where the witch would capture a pregnant fox, tame her, take special care of the kits when they're born, and when she 
when she and the kids are strong enough, she will leave, but she will ask the witch to name one of the kids. And the kid will always be in the witch's service. So just like Stockholm Syndrome to get your own familiar. <laughs> now, wow. Fox... Yeah. <laughs> so fox alignments tend to be all over the map. Once a fox enters the employment of one of these witches, though, they tend to be considered a force of evil and to be feared. The witch will have their fox companion help them achieve their goals, often in a covert manner. manner. And the powers of a fox may have is like all over the place. You can understand why they're a good companion for witches. So things that foxes can do is possession, generating fire and, or lightning, willful manifestation in the dreams of others, Flight, invisibility, creation of illusions, illusions so elaborate as to be almost indistinguishable from reality. Um, some tales speak of Kasunis with even greater powers, like the able to the ability to bend time and space, drive people mad, or take fantastic shapes as such as an incredibly tall tree or a second moon in the sky. <laughs> Foxes are OP. Okay. <laughs> Um, other say, if someone <laughs> trades me like food and lodging for magical powers, I'd be like, yeah, you can go cast some lightning for a little while. Let me eat this. <laughs> yeah. um, other Katsune have characteristics reminiscent of vampires or succubi, and they feed on the life or spirit of human beings, generally through sexual contact. So they can be seductresses in a way as well. So the witch will use their powers to trick people or overwhelm them to get what they want. But most feared of all the powers that a fox has is their ability to possess people. What a witch could do with a possessed person could be a nefarious thing as just ruining their lives or leading them to their deaths, or just pure scammy as the witch shows up and offers to exercise the person for a fee without revealing that they are the ones who in fact own the fox that is possessing your loved one. Oh my god. <laughs> oh, you were possessed? <laughs> I can help you with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here is some cool old-fashioned art of a fox possessing somebody. What? And like, you can often tell if a person is possessed by fox if they show preference for certain types of food, like um, that foxes normally can't get a hold of, but they really like, like red bean desserts and things like that. So if someone starts becoming a real glutton for this stuff, you're like, you're possessed by fox, obviously. <laughs> that doesn't look like possession. That looks like getting a back massage. A back massage. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's one of the magical powers that foxes have. Is <laughs> Very that, good fox, that fox is making biscuits on the back of that person. I mean, and... haven't haven't you ever had your cat just walk on your back and you're like, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> right. It's so it's so comforting for whatever reason. So on the hereditary hereditary side, there are families that are thought to have special relationships with fox spirits. The families often pray to and serve these spirits to watch over them and the people that they care about, bringing them prosperity and help with the harvest. Each generation is taught the rituals of their fox spirit. And the fox spirit's families usually do not marry non-fox spirit families. Well, these fox spirits sound a lot more benevolent than the wish familiars, it is still said that the families can pay tribute to the fox spirit to take revenge on their enemies. And thus, these families are often aren't trusted. These family, families found it difficult to sell property and do business with regular town folk. And as the fox spirit was thought to be passed down through women, the daughters had a really hard time finding husbands. So being perceived as a fox spirit family could ruin your life and the lives of all your offspring. During the Edo period, it was common to do extensive research into family trees of potential partners to ensure that there were no fox spirits in the family and that they were good breeding stock. If a family was identified as a fox family, the town may raise their house and banish them. So you see where this is going. <laughs> oh, yeah. So 
yeah, I'll give you uh, some guesses as to which families were most frequently thought to be Fox families. Rich ones? The other side of that scale. Oh, poor ones? Yeah, the poor, mm-hmm. impoverished, and undesirables I... of Japan. So to, um, today there's a word, burakumen, which is used to as a collective term for all of these undesirable groups. This classification began to show itself in the feudal era with discrimination, discrimination against beggars and people who worked in kagare, which is considered defilement jobs, such as executioners, undertakers, slaughterhouse workers, butchers, or tanners. So these people were all associated with death and were then considered like lesser people for, for everyone else. So they had, if you had a Kagara job, you carried death with you, essentially. You know, hmm. but someone had to butcher the meat, which is like, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like having a fox spirit, this reputation was hereditary, essentially making a cast of people that were considered the bottom of society. So if you play Dragon Age, they cast lists for the dwarf society. <laughs> Yeah. I got you. Okay. Yeah. Now, by the Edo period, a strongly regimented class system was in place, and the Birakumen became victims of severe ostracism and discrimination. So, accusing a Birakumen family of being a fox family was a good excuse to chase them out of town. As no one wanted such undesirables, Birakumen were forced to live in their own villages similar to ghettos, and this discrimination, while not as severe, still exists today. So in North America, it's hard to imagine anyone caring that your great-great-great-great-grandfather was a butcher. (laughs) Chances are you probably don't even know if they had been. Never mind anyone else knowing this. But in Japan, they've been keeping some form of census since the 6th century. So everything is tracked. (laughs) Right. Over the centuries, the stringency of these records and who was eligible to be included varied a lot. Um, But in 1872, the current registration came into place, known as Koseki. These records serve as birth and death certificates, marriage licenses, and a census, making these records highly valuable, especially since every Japanese citizen has to have one. In fact, if you don't have one, you're technically not a Japanese citizen. You cannot prove that at least one of your parents was Japanese. There was a case in 2014 in Japan where a family was harboring a 17-year-old child that had never been registered, denying them access to health care and education. They just lived in their family's house and never left. What the 2014. fuck? Yeah, oh my god. Real quick, I have two questions about yep. the Rakuman? Barakuman. Um, One, with the butcher thing, is that because they have a lot of influence from Buddhism and Buddhism is like values vegetarianism? It's very likely that so, probably came like, into a factor later, yeah. When the okay. Buddhism travels to Japan, I wouldn't be surprised. What year are you talking about? You were talking about the 1800s, weren't you? What year? Is uh, it? Yeah, well, like, um, it also started in the feudal period, which I think is. Oh, okay. Early, like, yeah, so it started real early. But yeah, um, once Buddhism came in there as well, it, I'm sure it had a big impact and added to that. And then, two, does did this also include like the um, indigenous population of Japan that is like never talked about? So were they being targeted as well? Or like, did they have anything that kind of indicated that? They were very likely part of that same class, the Barakuman. Um, they're not specifically mentioned as, you know, people that are part of this class, but they just basically said anybody who was considered untouchable. So I could oh, see okay. the indigenous population being part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I only learned that, like, that Japan had an indigenous, po- like, several indigenous populations, mm-hmm. like, in the last couple years. And it's I think I learned... Cool. I learned about it because we went to a restaurant 
a Japanese like ramen place that had posters about it on their wall. And I was like, oh, wow. what the fuck? That's cool. Yeah. 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 They were like talking about, I can't remember the name, but they're the northern, yeah, the northern indigenous population. And I wish I could remember. I know it starts with an A. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of crossed across a little bit of stuff while I was doing this, but I kind of wanted to leave that out because I want to cover them at a later date. Because yeah, it's super, it's super interesting that because those people don't know that they exist at all. They're just ignore for yeah. the most part. I knew. Um, yeah. That I cool. knew. There it is. I looked it up. <laughs> uh, so back to the Birkoman. After the Meiji rest- Restoration in 1868, the class system was abolished, just in time for the Kaseki to come into play. Most people at the time were recorded as commoners, but there were many Birkoman that were recorded as new commoners, indicating their previous status of being less than a commoner. Thus, discrimination didn't stop. And this is often something that they identified themselves as, too. So it wasn't just like, you know, you know, registration and stuff like the, the people doing it to them. They were just identifying their, themselves as it as well. As they were kind of like proud of this fact that, like, yeah, we're commoners now. Wow. Mm-hmm. So since its introduction, there have been many reforms to this Kasaki. Up until 1974, it was required to bring your Kasaki to job interviews. And you knew that your parents' partner, your partner's parents would want to see to see it if you were to even consider marriage. Thankfully, in 2008, the only people that can view your family's Kasaki is those in that family, with the exception of some legal institutions for specific scenarios. But up before that, anyone could go into like a records town or records building and like, hey, I need this record for this family. And they could look it up and they could see who your family was and where they came Holy from. Holy shit. That's fucked up. Wow. Mm-hmm. Despite efforts to reduce the ways that Kasaki could be used for discrimination, in 1975, the Baraku Liberation League, so this is a kind of a charity liberation group for Baraku men rights, essentially, were tipped off about the existence of a book called A, Comp- a Comprehensive List of Bar- Baraku Area Names. It was a 330-page handwritten book that had extensive records of Barakaman families and their addresses. The preface of the book says this. At this time, we have decided to go against public opinion and create this book for personal managers grappling with employment issues and families gained by problems with their children's marriages. So it's like, you know, they got told that, like, yeah, no, guys, you can't discriminate against these people. So, like, all the rich people were like, fuck it, and we're going to make our own book and make our own rules, as rich people did. So, yeah, the book was being sold on the streets for anywhere between 50 to $500, and that was in 1975. Um, and it was found that over 200 large companies, including Toyota, Nissan, and Honda, had purchased copies of this book. And while sale and production of the book has been banned, illegal copies still exist today. So if you're one of those like high-class families that really care about your bloodline and stuff like that, you probably have a copy of this book. And you would never let one of your children marry one of the people that came from one of these de- bloodlines. Good God. Good uh, fucking God. Um, yeah. Wow. So yeah, talk about making it hard to escape from your past. All it takes is one Barakamon in your lineage, lineage to affect how people see you, even impacting your ability to find work. It is said that over 60% of the Yakuza is comprised of, of Barakamon descendants turning to crime to find work, especially in the 1960s when organized crime was at its peak in Japan. But that was really long t- long ago, so are people really still being affected by this? Yes. 2001, there was a there were two candidates for a political party that were up to be considered the next election for prime minister. 
When out of nowhere, Hiromo Nonaka withdrew from the race. Years later, it'd be found out the reason that he withdrew was because he overheard his opponent saying that there was no way that they would let a, let a Barakaman become prime minister. Basically, his own party found out that he has Barakaman lineage, and he, he just left before it turned into a thing. Wow. But it's all... That, that, that's the thing that baffles me about shit like this. It's like, it's all social construct. All mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. yeah. It's just a person. Like, it, oh my god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's their own satanic panic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like... Yeah. God. It, but it never stopped. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I hate there it. Are, there are some very complex and very unfortunate social issues in Japan, and this is one of them. Yeah, Jesus Christ. We're lucky in North America that we don't really have much of a class system. Like, there's like the 1% and everybody else, but that's about it. Like... You know, in England, yeah, like your true. accent can tell people where you're from and you can be judged for that. India has a caste system. Yeah. 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 I mean, so. in America, we we have that with accents. Like we automatically think some yeah. southern accents are That's unintelligent and treat right. people different than other. Like if you think about like the hillbilly accent, like you're if you have anything like that, you're going to be treated as if you're stupid. But if you sound like Doc Holliday in Tombstone, at sexy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I can't believe we just pulled that reference out, Courtney. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. I love Doc Holiday. Like, I love that. Goodbye. <laughs> that, um, that made me so. That made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then also, if you think about it, like, like the the Pacific Northwest accent, oh, which yeah. is considered to be like a clean accent or a pure accent, is used pretty much for all of our media, right? Like mm-hmm. when I listen to the TV, almost every presenter sounds like me. Yeah. You know, versus like in the South, you don't hear that. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, we don't have as much, as many accents in Canada. It's like you either, co- you're a Quebecois or you're like if you're like a Newfoundlander, you have a, a bit of an accent from the East Coast. Or if you're from Toronto. Yes, <laughs> Southern Ontario. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. <laughs> oh, can I tell a quick accent story? Sure. So I went to the eye doctor this week, and I was talking with the lady who was doing like my initial exam, and she like looked at me funny for a little bit. Um, and I I've started to pick up the Canadian way of saying sorry, but it doesn't sound right apparently. Um, and she asked <laughs> me where I was from, and I was like, Oh, I'm I'm from the states, like originally from Alaska. And she was like, You don't sound like you're from here. And I was like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> um, which I know, like, my my inflections and stuff are, are not reflective of most people in BC. Um, but then my eye doctor came in, the ophthalmologist, and he's um, British. And, no, he's Irish. And he was like, asked me where I was from. And I was like, oh, I'm from the States. And he was like, oh, I couldn't tell that you weren't from here. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so I thought that was I was oh just like God. sitting there, and I told my mother in law, she's like, "You you sound pretty normal." I'm like, "Oh, I'm loud, mom. Like you know, yeah. Like you don't sound really that different to me. It's like every once in a while you'll say a word that sounds different, but other than that, like I would not. Yeah. Well, and I say things like I say Z, not Z, mm-hmm. and and there's a couple other ones, and I've also noticed that like um, accents here. Because I have a little bit of synesthesia. Accents here sound round when people are talking. So everybody's, mm-hmm. everybody in conversation sounds very soft. Mm-hmm. And, and 
kind of tapers off and I'm more square when I talk and it's a little more forceful, <laughs> a little more staccato. Um, so like, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Sorry for also derailing everything again okay. with no, my one coffee brain. No, it's interesting. <laughs> I love talking about accents and stuff. It's, it's one of my things. <laughs> All right. So, um, there is one other magical fox related entity known as Dakini Tens. Uh, these are female witches that appear in the form of or riding a white fox. So the Dakini Ten entered Japanese culture with the introduction of Shingon Buddhism. As Buddhism traveled through Asia, acquired many stories and practices that reflected the cultures that it passed through. Really, this is super fascinating, and I'm going to cover this one day because I did end up going down a huge rabbit hole about Buddhism when I was looking into Asian witchcraft, and holy fuck, that's crazy. Um... Anyways, Dakinis existed in Buddhism prior to its arrival in Japan. So I'm going to show you a picture here of kind of what um, a Dakini looked like more in like Hindu culture. So this is what would be considered a Dakini in Hindu culture. So yeah, it looked very much like it comes from Hindu folklore. Um, but during the high-end period in Japan, the Dakini image was mixed together with images of foxes and half-naked women. So according to that, and acquiring them that name, Dakini Ten. And thus this figure in her culture and became a very powerful symbol. Here's a picture. Okay. Oh, wow. So in the Middle Ages, the Emperor of Japan would chant before an image of the fox Dakini Ten during his enthronement. And both the Shogun and the Emperor were, ve were venerated Dakini Ten whenever they saw it. So as it was a common belief at the time that ceasing to pay respects to Dakini Ten would cause the immediate ruin of your regime. Oh. So very, very different. different. <laughs> <laughs> From the, the Brockman. Yeah. God. Don't be a fox for your family, but if you ride around on a fox, you're cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so some snake witches. Uh, so snake witches stories seem to only come from Shikoku, which is a small island off the coast of Japan and this very small Shikoku district. So despite everything I've read that was like, foxes and snake familiars are the most common, I had a hard time finding a lot of other stuff about the snakes. Um, so... There's one particular story, though, that's really common, which is about Jokotsu Baba. Um, this, is an, this is an old woman from a northern Fukan Koko, China. So this woman's from China. And in her right hand, she holds a large blue snake, and in her left, a red one. The people of this country call her Jokotsu Babu, Baba, um, the old snake bone hag. They say that she is the wife of Jokomen, which is the five snake emon, and then she holds vigil over the family tombs. She is sometimes called Jagoba, the five snake woman, depending on the dialect of the region. And um, at what, what some point in the mythology, it said that her husband's grave was moved to Japan. And then, like, yeah, whenever you're in graveyards, you have to kind of watch out for her. So here's a picture. Oh, wow. So, yeah, the uh, old snake bone hag. Ah, oh, man, oh. goals. That is cool. Damn, <laughs> yeah, for goals. I don't like <laughs> snakes, but that looks cool. I think this one's going to be more up your alley. So, unsurprisingly, cats are tied to witches, even in Japan. So, centuries ago, it was common belief that young women should not visit temples after the sun went down. The story goes that they would be approached by a kindly old woman who would lure the girl home and then turn into her true witch form and devour the girl. 
It was thought that cats that hang around temples are these witches in hiding, waiting for night to pounce. And I got some pictures for that, too. <laughs> Oh, dang. See, that one I just posted. Um, you can see the witch in the center with the cats around her, and then the samurai coming to kill her. Wow. And this picture is just terrifying. Oh, yeah, that is terrifying. Yep. Holy shit. Yeah, so cat witches. What is it eating? think it's a rabbit but okay not uh, oh no it is a rabbit yeah oh yeah so yeah nathan that character totally must be related to that legend yeah <clears throat> what's her name by by um, uh jack jack no. Baba. oh this no, girl the, the character oh i don't know uh the character's name is lisa it's from bleach Oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was from Genshin Impact because she looks like a character that I just saw in Genshin Impact because I was watching a video about how to pronounce the names properly in Chinese because I got mm. on a kick about learning about Chinese. Uh, um, I wouldn't that... be surprised since it is a it is a Chinese Japanese legend. So the um that video that you were talking about uh. I feel like I probably watched the same one and it was very informative. I appreciated it. Yeah. <laughs> I just. <All> right. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about necromancy and shamanism. Yeah. So generally they're considered entirely different classes from witches and wizards, but I don't care about your rules. They use magic. So I'm here. Give for me it. my bone army. <laughs> so like nearly all cultures stories of individuals that can talk to spirits have been in Japanese folklore since the beginning of the written word there are so many kinds and different stories that I could never cover them all As so I've narrowed it down just to a couple that we have the most information on and that are still prevalent today um, so first we kind of got to start out with Mikos um, which if you've ever seen any anime there's a good chance that you're familiar with them I'll post a picture here Um, so, oh, yeah. So, so Mikos are known as shrine maidens or priestesses. Um, in ancient times, their role was to get the messages of the gods or oracles and convey them to the other people. But in the modern age, it has changed to a role of they just, they're in shines and there's their shines that the role has changed in the way that they serve shrines and they're, they're women. So women were priests and seasayers, magicians, prophets and shamans, and they were the chief performers and organizers of Shintoism. So, which is kind of cool, like most religions are led by men, but a mm -hmm. lot of Shintoism is with a lot of women, so that's cool. Uh, Mikos perform so many diverse functions that classification is really difficult. Nakayama says that much of the origin of government, economics, literature, stage, etc. is from Miko. However, he makes a basic distinction between shrine-attached and non-shrine-attached. So most Mikos that people are familiar with are the ones that are attached to a shrine, meaning that, like, this is your job, this is where you find you, but there were some Mikos that used to travel as well. So their goal is to make sure happiness is spread throughout society and to remove an evil energy that resonates inside our souls. Mikos were important social figures early in history, and they were associated with the ruling class of Japan. 
Their presence meant a lot to the community as they would perform sacred ceremonies to ensure that those in charge would be guaranteed a humble passing into the spiritual world. Um, certified Miko earned her their living historically by performing kuchiyose, which is like invocations, but they were slaves, such as uh, geisha or shogi, prostitutes, um, whose revenues went to their masters. So back in the day, they're kind of, yeah, they were considered more slaves. They served the temple and all their money went to either the government or to, or to whoever owned the temple. Modern government banned this type of business, considering it as equivalent to human trafficking, which is fair. Mm-hmm. Um, In 1873, the Ministry of Religious Education banned all acts requesting oracles through the invocation conducted by Miko outside of the shrine. So this is called the Miko ban, which basically got rid of all Mikos that weren't in shrines. Um, Some continue to operate in various ways, through participation in traditional shrines or through new schools of Shinto. Some shrines started to hire Miko as a role to support the Shinto priests. In the modern age, Miko are women who work for shrines mainly through the role of routinely, routinely supporting priests and occasionally performing kagura, which is Shinto music, or mai, which is Shinto dance. Miko need neither certification or qualification. Basically, any wom- woman can serve as a Miko, as long as she is mentally and physically healthy. healthy. Since professional Miko are mostly daughters of priests, their relatives, or those who have connections to shrines, shrines do not publicly seek or hire professional Miko. So you're not going to see like a posting in like the newspaper. Generally, only large shrines can actually afford to like hire them to pay for them. So yeah, usually it's just family members. Oh yeah, I'm going to get there, trust me. (laughs) (laughs) So some more pictures. Um, There's even like, if you're a tourist, you can come and be a Miko for a day. There's like, like programs where you can go and like, they'll dress you up in the outfit and they'll teach you the ways. And it's just kind of more of a tourist thing nowadays, more than anything. So, Hmm. which is kind of cool to keep that heritage alive. All right, and then... So tools, traditional tools um, that we see are the Azusayami, the Katobobo, Tamagushi, or Sakaki tree branches, and the Gehobako. This is a spirit box containing several sacred items, such as central prayer, Shinto prayer beads. So in the modern world, obviously, if we think about the anime Sailor Moon, Sailor Mars was part of a shrine. She was a Miko when she was in his, her civilian form. Um, and a lot of the contemporary shrines that we found today um, like such as the Akuda Shrine and Chuo Ward of Kobe, Japan, is actually one of the oldest shrines in the entire country, dating back to the 3rd century. Mikos now generally serve as assistants at these shrines before special ceremonial dances and offer fortune telling and sell memorabilia. So it's, it's a lot more of a tourism thing more than anything nowadays. Um, and then there's Hamiko. So Queen Hamiko is the earliest ruler in Japan that can be verified as a real person and is thought to have lived between 18... Uh, 189 to 248. She was chosen as a ruler by her people after 70, 80, 70 to 80 years passed that was just all warfare. It was said that her staff was entirely comprised of women except for one male that was her ambassador and it was her brother. It is thought that she ruled for 50 to 60 years. In like 200. She 50 to 60 years. Yeah, geez. Wow. She presided over and was recognized as a, as a ruler of over 100 countries in Japan because Japan was broken up a lot. At that time, like there's all these little tiny territories and stuff, and they were all at war all the time until she showed up. Essentially, um, it's one of the most interesting things about Humiko is that she either goes unnamed or is purposely excluded from all of Japan's historical records. The reason for this, that from what we know about her at all, is actually records from China and Korea, who 
like it is they just wrote about it when they traveled japan since pretty much in japan almost all the records just don't exist as if she scrubbed away most likely it's suspected that the first historians of japan purposely excluded her or that the imperial government had her scrubbed from history so it makes it hard to get us get a lot of concrete information about her but through those records from china and japan we're well, china for korea china korea we're able to lot, learn a lot more so here's an illustration of her and yeah she was considered a miko so yeah, one of the first recorded rulers of Japan was a woman who was a priest, wow. <laughs> which is pretty cool. But also, um, how gorgeous is that art? Like, right? Jeez, so good. So the Yamabushi, um, Yamabushi are Japanese mountain hermits or monks that are believed to be endowed with supernatural powers. For more than 1,400 years, Yamabushi monks have been walking Japan's sacred mountains, believing that this harsh environment can bring enlightenment. The origins can be traced back to the solitary Yamabito of the 8th and 9th centuries. There has also been cross-teachings with samurai weaponry and Yamabushi's spiritual approach to life and fighting. So, like, trained martial artists, um, trained spiritualists, and they just fucking run around the mountains all the time. Um, they lived harsh lives, alone in the mountains, challenging themselves to the harshest environments and trials. They were strict followers of Hugo Shugendo, which is a religion that's a combination of Shinto, Buddhism, Taoism, and folk shamanism. They developed their own forms of cooking and became completely self-sufficient using what the mountains gave them, sometimes not coming into contact with society for weeks, months, even years on end. They just learned to live on the land alone and were mostly alone. Um, deeply in touch with nature, nature and adept martial artists, the Yamabushi were figures of myth and legend to the common folk. It is thought that they were the inspiration of the mercurial, mercurial mythical creatures called Tengu. So i got a picture here. I love Tengu. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're really cool. So uh, Tango are kind of like bird-like people-y creatures that like trick and prey on people and um, they're very wise and stuff. I, you know, I didn't cut, get into much of it here because we should probably cover that in another episode. But yeah, this is thought where those stories came from is from vision uh, from people seeing Yamabushi in the forest and stuff. And they have big noses. <laughs> and, oh, massive noses. Yeah. <laughs> So when Hall Hope seems to be lost, um, Yamabushi were often thought, sought for their healing skills and arcane knowledge. They were also known to serve as mountain guides since medieval times. It was not uncommon to see Yamabushi accompanied by Itaku, which we'll get to in a bit here. Um, as, and as their reputation for mystical insight and knowledge grew and the degree of their organization, organization tightened, many masters of ascetic disciplines began to be appointed to high spiritual positions in the court. Monks and temples began to gain pop political influence, and by the 13th and 14th centuries, they assisted Emperor Dogago in his attempts to overthrow the Kamakura shogunate, proving that their skills as warriors were commensurate with those of the professional samurai armies against whom they fought. So yeah, one side hired a bunch of like mountain priests, and the other side hired samurais. Uh, so yeah, several centuries later, in the Sengoku period, Yamabashi, Yamabushi were among of the advisors of armies and nearly every major contender for dominion over Japan. Some led by Takeda Shingen aided Oda Nobunaga. Dead. Oda Nobunaga. Nobunaga. Yeah, that one. Um, crush them and put the put an end to the time of the warrior monks. Today, they're still going strong. There's about six thousand members, and but most of these practitioners don't do it full time. And I've got some pictures here. So yeah, people still do this. Um, and like the Miko thing, you can 
do it as a tourist thing. You can kind of go like to a week long training thing and learn about it and learn the martial arts and go through like the holy mountains and stuff like that. All right. And last, we are going to talk about Itaku, or also known as Ichiko, um, which this is what I'm really kind of excited about. Japan has long associated blindness with spiritual powers. After the introduction of Buddhism, it was considered evidence of karmic debt. These beliefs lent an aura to the ambiguous sacred statue status of the blind. Originating in the Oromori Prefecture in, in northern Japan, we don't know the exact date, but um, research points to the days of prehistoric Japan when many villages were led by female shamans. But between 710 to 794, the Itaku are first referenced in a poem by anthropologist Wilhelm Schiffer, who describes a local legend about the practice of recruiting blind women into shamanism. According to this legend, the practice began in an undetermined era when blind children were killed every five years. Oh, a local wow. official, impressed, by, impressed with a blind woman's ability to describe her environment despite her lack of vision, determined that the blind must have special powers. So rather than being killed, the, the blind should be left to study necromancy. Yeah! <laughs> I mean, we went from ableism to fetishism and then necromancy, so I'm confused. It's always both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, true. Is this, so, is this like a belief that because you were missing one of your senses that suddenly you've like tapped into a sixth sense? Kind of, yeah. So Ataki were traditionally female and they would start training between 11 to 13 years of age at the encouragement of their parents. This was a way for their daughter to contribute to the household. This was seen as an acceptable means for blind women to contribute to the local village and to avoid becoming a financial burden to their families. It's like a big deal at this time that everybody in the family contributed. Um, male and female didn't matter. So training was often funded by the village rather than the family. And training included a lot of memorization of Shinto and Buddhist prayers and sutras. Um, also, the apprenticeship typically lasted one to four years. During this time, the Itakuan training is essentially adopted by a practicing shaman and performs household work for that family. In preparation for the initiation ceremony, Itaku must endure a hundred day fast. She is not permitted to consume grain, salt, or meat. In the last three, three weeks, this is more strictly observed. The Itaku dresses in a white kimono similar to, the, to a burial gown. And she must avoid artificial heat. This has been described as sleeplessness, semi-starvation, and intense cold. In some cases, this involves a cold water purifying bath, which in its most extreme form can involve complete sustained drenching by ice cold water for a period of several days. You're not eating, you're soaked in water for days. And these rituals are observed by the community, which then pray for a fast resolution. This process usually leads to a loss of consciousness, which is then described as the moment in which a spirit has taken possession of the Otaku's body. In some cases, the Otaku must collapse while naming the spirit. In other cases, the names of various spirits are written and scattered while the Otaku sweeps over them with a brush until one of them is caught, which denotes the name of that spirit. The initiation normally takes place before the first menstruation, since at a later time, the union with a god is believed to be more difficult. At this point, a wedding ceremony is performed. And this is basically the Itaku's initiation. She is dressed in a red wedding dress, has her teeth colored black, and partakes in the Sansen Kudo ceremony, which is the triple ritual sipping of sake, which sounds great. Um, <laughs> red rice and fish are consumed to celebrate her marriage to the spirit. So, yeah, like it's like 
you go through this whole training thing, you spend 100 days fasting, you get soaked in cold water until the point that you collapse or go unconscious, and then you either say the name of the spirit that you're, that's possessing you, or someone, like, you, you help them find it, and then you get married to it. Okay. Now, that's, a less, that's the intense. less cool and part... And this was, like, a... This was a child. Yeah, like, between 11 to 13. You usually want to yeah. do it before your first menstruation. Wow. Mm-hmm. And yes, to make this even less cool, until quite recent times, the marriage was consummated by a Shinto priest taking place of the deity. Oh, no! Yeah! Oh, that has been so bad, and then that happened. Yeah, that part's not cool. Um, so it is suggested that the ceremony signals the death of the otaku's life as a burden and her rebirth as a contributing member of society. After the ceremony, the otaku retires for eight more days into isolation of a shrine and then is ready for to practice her profession. When someone dies in the village, she visits the family of the deceased in order to call back the soul, or people come and visit her when they want a message from the hereafter. So for tools of the trade, they typically carry, carry several artifacts. So the jehobako, which is a box outside of Buddhist law, is its contents are kept in strict secrecy. But it was found out that they have had something to do with personal protective spirit of the women. So you have a box, you got your special items in there that, that like deal with your spirit spouse um, that help you connect to that and help protect you from other spirits. So the contents include small figures, a representation of an embracing couple, skulls of cats or dogs, and sometimes even human beings. Um, and there is a story of a ritual called the Inugami. Inugami, which is uh, not going to be pleasant. I'm sorry, guys. A dog is buried up to its neck and starved while staring at food too far to reach. Uh-huh. The otaku places the animal's skull into a box and offers it and offers its spirit a daily offering of food. In return, the spirit enters homes of her patrons and provides detailed information about the dead. Okay. Yeah. So cool, but not cool. Don't torture your animals. Don't it's not fun. That. Yeah, the dead ain't worth it. They're gone. Just let it go. Yeah. They also nope. usually carry a black cylinder on their back. Um, it's usually like a black lacquer tube of bamboo, and it contains another protective charm, their certificate of otaku training, and the cylinders also said that they are used to be to trap spirits of animals that attempt to possess a human being. So, like, they may use it to try and catch a fox spirit that's trying to possess somebody. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um, beaded necklaces, which they use in ceremonies, made up of beads and animal bones. The bones are typically jawbones of deers and foxes, but have also included bear teeth, eagle claws, or shells. Some of the necromancers have bows in- instead of rosaries. These strings sing as, the- as they pluck them. So, other than that, they often have two simple puppets called the Oshiosama, which they make dance. So, for powers and practices, Ataku are said to be able to communicate with Kami and the dead. Ceremonies vary, but typically Ataku are called upon to communicate with Kami to garner favor or advisement at harvest. And Kamis are like local spirits. Um, Or to communicate with the spirits of the dead, particularly recently deceased. So, Kuchiyos, as we talked about with um, the Mikos, is that ritual contact of the dead. They do a similar practice with the Otaku do. Um, it's basically considered an intangible cultural heritage of Japan. Like, the ritual has, has been documented as early as 1024 AD, but wow. like, it varies so much by region and the performer, but it is something that's just something that's unique to Japan. Huh. So, the ritual is held during a funeral or the anniversary of a death. 
During the ceremony, purifying rice and salt are scattered, and a spirit is said to enter the body of the otaku. Gods are asked to compel the desired spirit to come forward. Calling the dead is usually performed in a reverse hierarchy of power, beginning with kami, which is the regular like spirits rising up to level ghosts. The local kami is called forth to protect them during the ceremony. And during the summoning of the deceased, the otaku sings songs called kudoki, said to be relayed by the contacted spirit. Um, the spirit of the dead arrives and shares memories of its life and the afterlife, answering questions for patrons. Then the spirits are sent away and the songs are sung about hell, insects, and birds. Okay. Um, a final spell is repeated three times. The old fox in the Shinoda woods, when he cries during the day, then he does not cry in the night. The interaction lasts about 15 minutes. Um, petitioners, mostly simple fishermen and farmers, are deeply impressed by the whole scene and very often break into tears together with the necromancer. A young woman from Morioka, who has had 10 different invocations with different necromancers, expressed how consoling it was. She said that even if many of their, their pronouncements were not really relevant, still the few true words were sufficient to console the bereaved. Saying like about 2 out of 10 had something relevant to say. Okay. Um, so, music... Uh, Mizukukuya is a ceremony performed for mothers who have lost their children in childbirth or through abortions. The ritual gives the unborn or stillborn child a name and then calls upon the protection of the spirit, Jizo. The ceremony is considered by many to be a scam preying on grieving mothers, owing to its relatively recent origins in the 1960s. Others, however, see the practice as addressing a spiritual need created by Japan's legalization of abortion in 1948. I mean... But people were definitely doing that way before that. That was like a legit form of yeah. birth control, um, as was infanticide for a long time. For sure. Yeah, yeah, and I imagine they did ceremonies around children, the death of children as well. Like, I see no reason why they wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. and actually, that's kind of a cool thing to be able to do, because, like, so many people, like, so many, like, cultures don't address like miscarriages and abortions and child loss like it you're just supposed to in the western world anyway you're supposed to gloss over it and like being able to name your child and grieve them and get a message from them of hey mommy i'm okay it can be really yeah. soothing it can be therapeutic and like if that's the way that you know it helps you grieve and helps you work through that process then great yeah. um you know, obviously like we don't want anyone scamming anybody but like if it's just like a practice that's like harmless in that way of just celebrating that person and you know, yeah. I think it's good. They're not like your fetus has a message and you need to give <laughs> me five thousand dollars. Uh so here's a, some very old pictures of Ataku. Um so yeah, generally um, the otaku will either live in the towns that they grew up with in the shrines and will, you know, be that otaku for that town. Other times they will travel. Um, a lot of times they ended up getting, they ended up meeting up with Yamabushi and traveling with them, sometimes even, even marrying them. So, like, there could be a couple, which is a Yamabushi and a otaku <laughs> that traveled together. Interesting. Hmm. Even so though she's technically married to a god? Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, I, I had questions about how that worked, but it was something that I saw repeatedly mentioned that that may happen. Maybe it's just because he's also, like, so devoted to the, like, spirits of nature and stuff as well that it doesn't really count. I don't know. Maybe he's, like, a uh, uh, incarnation. I could see them playing that angle. Yeah. But I like that, because, like, 
nuns can't do that. Yeah. In the Western world. So like being able but being able to have a partner is important. Yeah, and I also like the fact that like, you know, if they're willing to partner up with the otakus, like it gives the otaku an opportunity to travel and stuff. Because if you're blind, yeah, your options are quite limited and it's not like you're making much money doing this. Right, so it's yeah. not like you pay for stuff like that. So have somebody who's gonna be able to travel with you, be a companion with you, who understands kind of your spiritual Make beliefs. Sure you're not being cheated. Yeah, and also be able to protect you too, yeah. because they're martial artists. Yeah. So I thought it was kind of neat. Um, like so, despite all their power, Itaki were still considered to occupy one of the lowest social stratas within a community, especially those who relied on community support for their financing of their training. The term Itaku has associated, been associated with beggars, and some mediums reject the use of the term today. One theory suggests that the term is derived from Eta no Ko, or child of the Eta, referring to the Japanese and social class who were once mm. associated with death. So they may have been associated on the same level in some cases. Oh, wow. Um, visitors to the otaku, otaku typically bring fruit, candy, or other gifts and offer the age, relationship, and gender of the deceased, but not the name. Hmm. So, some history. So, from 1603 to 1868, which is the Edo period, um, women were expected to contribute to family wages. However, blind women of the era had limited to no opportunities. So, this was a career for them, which, again, super cool. Instead of just, you know, purging your children every couple, your blind children every couple of years, give them a way to help the community. Um, so 1868 to 1912, which is the Meiji period. Um, in 1873, the government attempted to ban otaku, claiming that they are charlatans taking advantage of good people for their money and spreading lies that their health and personal problems were, were caused by cats and foxes, all in an effort to encourage the use of modern medicine. There were about 200 otaku practicing at this time, and law led to the rest of mediums across Japan. By, 19, by 1875, Otaku and their healing rituals were specifically targeted and would be arrested on site. Arrests were justified with charges such as spreading superstition to obstruction of medical practices. Newspapers of the era referred to Otaku in negative terms, often associating them with prostitution. So this is kind of the Japanese version of witch hunts. And like, wow. you know, for the purpose of trying to get people to use modern medicine, like, I understand where you know, people turn into you in a taco or something instead of an actual doctor could be problematic for your society. Because, <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. like today, people who use essential oils instead of antibiotics Medicine. can be a problem. Yeah. Um, so Professor Hori from the Tokyo University draws attention to the connection between necromancers and prostitutes. Many necromancers were nomadic. Some seem to have, some to seem to have acted as prostitutes indicated by the word usual, prostitute. But as Yuko Suro Jose, traveling woman, so there may have been confusion between the words. Mm. Uh, but like it is also possible that some of them did indeed were, were indeed prostitutes. Um, there's a similar institution of the Ichio Suma, which is called One Night Wives. Is their task to make themselves available to traveling gods, Marabito, and this would also explain why pleasure quarters were so often found in the neighborhood of Shinto shrines, and prostitutes were so fervently participant in shrine festivals. So it's really interesting that there's that deep connection between Shinto shrines and stuff and the sex industry. So it's like, you know, it's obviously, like, we see a lot of times, even in modern today, like, um, sex workers who do ha are very fervently religious, like, it mm -hmm. provides them some comfort, and someplace where they're not being judged, if, you know, the, yeah. priest, the church actually holds the right. Depending place. on what the church is. Yeah. 
1945, shortly before and after the surrender of Japan in World War II, families sought out otaku to communicate with the war dead, particularly those that were lost abroad. Some even requested live seances for soldiers overseas. Some areas stopped enforcing the laws against these women, while in other in other areas, local residents would interfere in attempts to stop arrest people from arresting them. So it's like, in some cases, the law was just like, okay, whatever, just let them do it. It's making people feel better. In other places, like, the actual townsfolk yeah. got in the way, which I thought was pretty cool. I love you know, it, it's, again, it goes back to the loss of, like, children and, like, stillbirth and stuff like that. Like, if it brings Aww. you peace, there's something, there's something yeah. nice about that. So today, otaku are mostly com- most commonly associated with Mount Osore, which is um, in Aramori Prefecture and is known locally as the as Mount Dread, an extinguished volcano where no trees, plants, or animals live, including birds. And at the top is a small Zen temple called Insuji, founded in 1678 by Emperor Ragen. I got a picture. Uh, yeah. That's weird that nothing grows there and nothing lives there because volcanoes are like. Yeah, the ash is really fertile and stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. Really So this is the temple at the top there. No. Um, but yeah, the area surrounding the temple is just all rock. It's so weird. <laughs> so the temples are open only in the summer, since it's popularly believed to be the residents of the dead, who can easily be contacted at the yearly All Souls Day, also known as Oban. Every year, necromancers get gather between the 20th and 25th of July to assist those who visit the temple in establishing contact with the dead. So really, there was a yearly convention to hang out with mediums and talk to the dead. <laughs> it's like Dia de los Muertos, where you yeah, hang exactly. out in the graveyard. Yeah, so the gathering has been um, received television coverage since the 1960s. Um, they also attend a summer festival at the Karakara Sinakara. Um, so these, when you, most places you're going to see Otaku now is at these festivals. Uh, despite the disavowal of many religious organizations and temples in Japan, both events have become tourist attractions that attract crowds of hundreds. The local government even includes an image of an otaku in its tourist brochures now, and have attempted to fund permanent otaku positions in the nearby temple to encourage sustained tourism throughout the year. But in contemporary Japan, otaku are on the decline. In 2009, there were less than 20 that remained, all over the age of 40. Otaku are increasingly viewed with skepticism and disdain, and contemporary education standards have all but eradicated the needs for the specialized training for the blind. So, like, blind people don't have to resort to becoming a spiritual medium. They can have normal jobs now, which makes Mm -hmm. sense and fair. Um, So... Only four graying otaku appeared at Mount Osare's week on, week-long su- summer festival this year. And that was in 2009. Three had died in the last year. Three had died of old age. Worse, the only practicing medium younger than the retirement age of 40, or younger than retirement age, was 40-year-old Kiko Humake, known among believers as the last otaku, stopped coming that year for health reasons. Now, there are so few otaku that visitors routinely wait in line for several hours to see one. An otaku charges about 3,000 yen for a visit, which is about $30. So it's not like they're robbing you or anything Mm. um, for each spirit that's called. And it's roughly a 10-minute ceremony that you get for that. Which is like, that's completely harmless in my my opinion. Like, Yeah, it's like going and getting your palm read or something. I was just going to say, yeah. So Miss Umakai says that she enters a trance when which she feels the presence of a spirit and its mood, which she expresses in her own words. 
she said that she decided to begin the three-year period of study to become a spiritual medium as a teenager after after an otaku near her rural village cured her of an ailment the doctors could not fix. She says that we can see a very ancient flame dying out before our eyes, but traditions have to change with the times. So it's kind of amazing that there is this woman that is considerably so young that still decided to pursue um, this spiritual thing, just because it's almost non-existent now. Right. Um, yeah. Shorjiro Kurokawa is 82, and he can remember as a child in the 1930s when residents of his, uh, his and other nearby villages would trek to the temple to hold week-long festivals of all-night dancing, singing, and seances. In those days, he said that there were more than 100 otaku. But he says this now. This is an era when children ignore their parents and forget about the dead. He runs a nearby temple and caters to visitors of spiritual mediums. You know, and it is, I think it's a very important part of Japanese heritage. They're very in touch with their dead, like, you know, kind of like the Mexican culture is as well. The fact and it's really kind of sad that it's dying out in this way. Right. They're so few in number, they've made us an association called the Otaku Ko. Um, and they do occasionally work with Buddhist temples, usually to provide support during funerals. But there's just so few of them now. Like if there was only you know four practicing ones in 2009, I can't re- imagine how many there are now. I couldn't find any exact numbers. Mm. But here's a picture from 2009. Um, this is an otaku being led in by I think they're her husband. Oh my goodness, mm. he's so cute. <laughs> and and this is um the the youngest otaku that is still around. Um. Kiko Humakai. Wow. And yeah. she's not she's not young. She's not young. No, no yeah, she's like in her like, not to be rude. Yeah, she's in her 40s, probably now 50s at least. She looks older than that. Well, she I'm was in her four sure. she was in her 40s in the 2009. So Okay. It's so interesting because they look like like you wouldn't think that they were like priestesses or anything like that. Like they just look like regular Japanese women in kimonos, like mm-hmm. like daily kimonos, not anything fancy even. Yeah, yeah. Like from all the pictures that I could find of modern itaku, yeah, they they wore like nice kimonos and stuff like that, just like clean and just wore traditional garb in that way, but like there wasn't anything like there wasn't like a like a priest outfit or anything that they were wearing. Not like the the Miko where they have like that yeah. very distinct red pant, white shirt. Yeah. Yeah, like I think if they had developed some sort of like uniform or something, it could help be a tourism thing as well. But like yeah. again, when there's only right. four of you left and most of yeah. you are like pushing eighty kind of thing, it's tough to make those kind of changes. No, I just like did did they say if they I don't remember if you said but like did they used to have like a uniform or like something no. that denoted them? They were just blind yeah, and that was they enough. Were, yeah, they were completely <laughs> independent. Um they frequently wore white kimono that were similar to burial gowns mm. to like represent their connection to the dead, but I don't know if they just wore that on special ceremony or if that was regular thing that they did. Mm. Okay. Um, so there are similarities between otaku and another type of female shaman known as kamisama. But kamisama and otaku believe in a marriage to a spirit and both follow the Buddhist deity Fudomoe. However, kamisama are cited and typically claim prophetic powers in the aftermath of a traumatic disease. Unlike otaku, they are associated with small Shinto shrines, 
which they may operate themselves. Kamisami tend to view otaku with suspicion, though ethnographers have found that kamisama often associate themselves with otaku and otaku traditions. So just mm-hmm. another type of shaman exists, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like a lot of the otaku don't go to shrines, and they were banned from shrines. Like they weren't allowed to go to them because, like, it's like you're a menace. <laughs> There's praise on Aww. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and like so, they're only allowed near. Like they're not even allowed to practice in the shrines at these events. But they're allowed to be near them because of the events are celebrating wow. the event, right? So. so what is today like for witchcraft? Well, that's kind of what's going on with Itaku. Um, but the witchcraft and stuff it has found its place in Japan, Japanese culture. There's a lot of the, the stories that are directly inspired by witches and their familiars and such like that. Like we think of the magical girl trope, which is a very, very common uh, genre in Japan. Um, usually focuses on a girl or a group of girls with magical powers, which typically align with Western depictions of magic. They'll often have familiars, like you think Sailor Moon and Luna. Um, Evil evil witch antagonists are often inspired by the European version, are are quite popular as well, but their power rarely comes from worshipping devils. Hmm. So, like, yeah, the magical girls um, genre is usually a group of girls together, they work together, um, and they're their powers, it's never anything that's, like, rooted in religion, usually. It's, like, they have powers because they're just supernatural beings, and they're descendants of supernatural beings, and they aren't judged by their magic, really. Like, if you think, like, you're not familiar with Sailor Moon, but, like, um, in Sailor Moon, yeah, they, like, they're just worshipped as heroes, right? Instead of being like, oh my god, mm-hmm. they've got magic powers, burn them at the stake. They're mm-hmm. witches, burn them. Yeah. Also, their transformation sequences are always amazing. Always the bomb. <laughs> um, so some specific characters. So talking about Miko, as Courtney brought up, um, we've got Kogomi from the anime and manga in Yuasha, um, which is a story she um her character in modern times was she worked at a shrine, but she kind of fell into a well and got sent back in time. And so she then adopts the Miko outfit and travels around with some demons. It's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, like that's kind of an example of where we see we see Mikos in pop culture. We also see it with um, one of the Sailor Scouts, Sailor Mars, is a Miko. That is her day job. Her family owns a shrine. Hmm. <laughs> I love I love the Japanese chips. They're great. Um, and as for spiritual characters, we do see a lot of stuff like um, Bleach, like Nathan mentioned, um, is a little like about spirit hunters and demon hunters and stuff like that. Um, one series called Shaman King, which is both a manga and anime. Um, the main character is a shaman who's training and determined to become the Shaman King. Like there's a big shaman uh, tournament. Um, and what he wants to do is make a contact with the great spirit, because if you win, you get to do that. And you can then shape the world whoever you want. This tournament only happens every 500 years. Um, and it just pits shamans from all around the world against each other. Um, so what they do is they use a companion spirit to help them in battle. And character Yo uh, ends up recruiting a, a samurai spirit to be kind of his battle companion. So here's a picture of that. Which is oh. a dupe, super dope manga I read as a kid. <laughs> I love it. Um, his grandmother was an otaku um, who trained his friend and love interest Anna. A picture of her. So we do have otakus as well featured here. And her outfit does not look like what you'd expect 
you know, spiritual shaman to look like. <laughs> and she's a total badass. Um, and she's not blind. But um, nowadays, in more modern times, people who are not blind are allowed to train to be a Tapu. So. Huh. Yeah. So the anime was also recently rebooted by Netflix um, as of last year. So you, if you're interested in that, you can check that out there. Ooh. But yeah, so like most of the modern stuff when it comes to the spiritualism and witchcraft that Japan has history for is either it's used in a tourist man manner now or is this kind of dying out, which is a little bit sad. Yeah. Yeah. Or, but a lot of it lives on in pop culture. It's very prominent themes that we see there and it's celebrated a, a lot. Like we see a lot of historical reference and, and cultural reference to like actual cultural practices in their media. Whereas we don't see as much in North American media. Like our stuff is, very streamlined and like modern very day media kind of yeah yeah so but like you know i grew up reading manga and watching anime and stuff and i like every anime manga that i could think of there was reference to some sort of cultural like practice or something like that that you just don't see yeah north american media well like my neighbor totoro yeah it's just about forest spirits yeah, like a lot of the Ghibli movies. Like um, most of them. <laughs> yeah, like Princess Mononoke is about forest spirits. Yeah. And like how they're trying to react to their environment being destroyed. Yeah. And like in Japan, spirits can be in anything. Like you got spirits of the house, you got spirits and like there's animal spirits, there's forest spirits. Dust spirits. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's kind of a neat cultural thing and it's unfortunate that it's kind of dying out but hopefully they right. continue if by selling and braiding it in pop culture that maybe a part of it can stay alive a bisexual disaster I just oh, yeah. saw that oh my god so, I um I started reading it on webtoons it's really good and it's it's about a girl who is basically like a um She's basically a hedge witch, but she's in Japan, so I don't really know what the name would be. But she runs an apothecary with her mom, but the government is no longer allowing traditional medicine. And so, like, she's struggling to, like, keep it going. And then she runs into a yokai and gets whisked off to the spirit world. And, like, there's um, tanuki, there are fox spirits, there's different yokai, there's um, tengu. It's really fun. And then, yeah, they talk about, like, she falls in love with, like, every semi-attractive character that she comes across. <laughs> That's um, And then, and like, yeah, I also... Yokai they, are just traditional, like, monsters and fairy tale creatures. Demons. Yeah, yeah, they're oh, okay. great. And then um, I also linked Mushishi, which is one of my favorite anime. I guess there's also a manga, but I haven't read it. And it's just about a traveling. He's kind of like an like an exorcist, I guess. He deals with troublesome spirits that have been bothering people or like harming people. Um, and it's kind of like a thinker, a thinking one where he's like, "Oh, like how like does my work really matter? Am I actually doing the right thing? Like because I'm hurting." It's very cool. I I enjoy watching it. And then like it's got like weird, creepy. Japanese monster things in it, and I love them. Japanese horror is the best. It's really great, and it's not—it's not like super scary. I think there's a couple that are kind of creepy, but like because it's so different than Western, like monsters mm -hmm. and demons, I like—I just find it fascinating. 
Because it's yeah, an accepted I mean, part of life, like versus like ours where we're like, oh God, throw salt at it. They're kind of like, yeah, there's like a tanuki that comes and like fucks up my shit every once in a while. And it's not very kind of him, but like, I guess he's not really hurting anything. <laughs> it's more like the Irish, the Irish attitude like fairy, towards the yeah. fae and the little people. Oh, okay. Which I also enjoy. Um, yeah. So I, mean, I think that the big thing with like Japanese yokai and stuff like that is it's very rarely black and white, good and evil, mm-hmm. which I really like. Um, and you see like a, a lot of the animes and stuff when they're dealing with this kind of stuff. It's like, oh, is this like in Princess Mononoke, the forest spirit that like rampages the town? It's like it wasn't doing that because it was evil. It was doing that because it felt threatened. Yeah. Or even like the the pig spirit that wounds that's what i was thinking prince. of yeah well like and it wasn't he was like basically defiled and possessed because his home was being defiled so it wasn't necessarily like a choice for him mm-hmm. that's yeah, such a good sure. movie go watch all the ghibli movies everyone <laughs> right okay. now do it i'm if you making have, it. If you have disney plus i think they're all on there they're, <laughs> they're all on they're, netflix. On, they're on canadian netflix um um, you might go visit the high seas um, to go watch maybe, them. Maybe <laughs> before you say watch all of the Ghibli movies, don't watch Grave the, the Tanuki Fire one. Oh, the Tanuki one's kind of funny. The Tanuki one is fucking weird. What's it called? I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff with Tanuki, and it's long. And there's a bunch of raccoon balls. There's a lot of raccoon balls, which is hilarious and I'm canon. sorry, what? So oh Tanuki, so Tanuki, which are Japanese raccoons, um, raccoon are typically depicted with very large testicles a lot, and they will use them to like they will like transform them into things. Like in the movie, I think they used them as parachutes at one point. Um, uh, they'll also bounce on them. Go go gadget, I guess. Go go gadget testicles. Um, That's- Oh, see. Here we go. Yep. Oh, there God. you go. Oh, they also like Tanuki. Also in um, why like folklore and stuff and foxes <laughs> too will often use leaves on their heads to like transform themselves or to oh, trick humans. Now so, the Mario thing makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So like if you've ever seen that in a show or a game, like that's the thing that's happening. I got really into this because I didn't know what was happening in a lot of the shows I was watching. And I was like, what the fuck's <laughs> up with this leaf? Like I understand it transforming you, but like like why is this happening in like four different shows? And then I learned and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> one of my favorite is the spirited away. If you kind of want to understand more about Japanese yes. spirits, that's a great one to watch. I love Spirited Away. That's oh, so good. Um, oh, we also didn't talk about lucky cats, which are kind of like they're not directly related to witches, though. Not, are they? Uh, no, I guess not. I don't know. Like, it's just a cool. St- I don't know. I just thought like familiars. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, well, now I know what Courtney has to cover the next time we're looking for a topic. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. lucky cats, <laughs> like yeah. just like just like folklore familiars. surrounding cats. Yes, yeah. I yeah. have like two black cats statue things sitting i have a lucky black cat that's a magnet and then i have a gg from kiki's delivery service um it's supposed to be an you ornament absolutely cover that because i think that would be really cool i love cats that's great um i probably have a brain parasite from them but you know <laughs> we all do. they're we very all do. cute 
Yeah. yeah. We're, we're, they've brain damaged us and we love them, so it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I've had cat scratch fever twice. It's fine. <laughs> oh my God, really? Yeah, seriously. Oh man, that's, that's, it's that's basically hard. like getting hit with the flu. Hmm. Really oh. bad, but it can, it can be very damaging. Um, oh, look. Yeah. Aww. Oh, look at that kitty. My mom bought them for me. Oh, except for, good. no, I got the cat at Daiso. I used to have a, a, a black, um, lucky cat statue that belonged to my great grandmother from one of her trips to Japan. Oh, wow. Because my family is obsessed with Japan on both sides, apparently, or uh... on both sides of my dad's family. Yeah. Like both his parents' parents loved Japan and went there several times. My, my dad's cousin, um, actually lived in Japan for a while and she does like, um, she can speak J- Japanese and so can her kids. And so, like, they used to do commercials and she does, like, huh. announcements for tennis matches because she's really into tennis. Um, and they lived That's in so Japan recently. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's like, for some reason, my family is just like, oh, Jap- Japanese culture is dope. We should get into that <laughs> in, like, the most respectful way possible. Like, also, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. And then, you know, wrong. you end up with, like, me. I'm just, my me and my, I don't know so much my brother, but I'm definitely, like, a fucking weeb and love it. And my dad loves it. M- my mom just looks at us like, why are you watching cartoons? <laughs> cartoons are stupid. I would be your mom. mother. I would be your mom. mother. Yeah. <laughs> how how is, to, like, go I don't get it. Animation? My brain stops, okay? I can't uh... help it. Yeah, we're, I have we're tried. To I'm gonna slowly. try again. I'm gonna try again. Oh, we're trying well, to get her to do Castlevania eventually. I gotta get there before I forget. Witches being burned in a pile. I forgot to show you that. Oh, okay. and their souls leaving. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's I had so all good. these dope awesome. illustrations, and I totally forgot. Oh wow! Yeah, it's intense. Um, so before so... I forget, yeah. So to, you know, for the ignore list on the Ghibli movies, Pompoko and Grave of the Fireflies, if you just don't want to be super fucking depressed. Yeah, maybe yeah, yeah Grave of the Fireflies will ruin your life. Yeah. It's a, it's I own it. Movie, I have not opened also, it. It's a great it's a, it's movie. It's a movie but, you watch once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Someone, I think, because I always ask for Ghibli movies for Christmas presents, birthday presents, because I'm trying to own them all. Um. And I think my parents or a family member bought me Grave of the Fireflies because they saw it was Ghibli. And I looked at it and I was like, thanks. <laughs> we'll have to wait for a day in the future when I am not hurting. <laughs> do, you know, do you know anything yeah. about Grave of the Fireflies, Sally? I have no idea what you're talking about. So, yeah, I'm sure. It's World War II, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so two kids that end up being homeless. Oh, and losing their family and stuff, and trying to survive during World War II. It is like when I tried to play this war of mine and got super depressed and couldn't do it. Oh, this war of mine is is kind of is on the same level. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So no, never. (laughs) No. Yeah, Yeah, you don't have to watch that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't watch. That's like the only one I haven't seen. Were you playing the little ones? Yeah. Yeah, oh, okay, okay. I actually haven't played that yet. I only played, like, the main game, and it was still Mm -hmm. uber brutal. It's brutal. It's just, it's too much. I was like, I play games to escape, not be thrown into a depressive black hole. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. See, I would immediately see cover. that and be like, nah. Yeah. yeah. Nope. That's the cover. It is, it is a really good movie and it does a really good job of demonstrating the horrors of war and all that. Um, sure. But it will kick your ass. It's, yeah, it's not a feel good movie. <laughs> yeah. No. I would not force you to watch that. That is movie. a that is a hard pass. Hi, kitty. Mine came in. She's squeaking at me. Honey, mm-hmm. do you want to kick Craig? Bye, Craig. Bye. Bye, Craig. Bye, Craig. Well, that was yours. Was much cheerier than mine. That's it for this week. Next week, we return with Nathan talking about the happy fun times that were the witch hunts in America, and Cordy takes us home with modern witchcraft. Special thank you to Kat Dossett for providing us with our amazing cover photo. You can check out more of her work at catdossett.com and catdossett on Instagram. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. To keep up with all things exceptional, be sure to follow us on Twitter or Facebook at The Human Exception. Do you have a story that you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong or you just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. And if you want to get out on the fun, you can come join our Discord server. Link can be found on our contact page. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. Usagi Kenshin in 1568. Eventually, say it again for me. <laughs> no, Nobunaga. 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 I was starting to say it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I don't know what it is about that goddamn airport, but I hate it. I will go out of my oh, way to wait. go around. <laughs> Do I have to spend an extra you got an $200 octopus? to not? Yeah. Like Dallas, just I just go through Houston time. or something. Like Houston's mm-hmm. not terrible, but like Dallas is the worst. It's bad. Um, is is or, Detroit or the one that's a super like secret underground everything? No, that's Denver. Denver. Yeah. There you go. Denver. The other D. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I was like, been to Denver, you're gonna have to do yeah. like a mini episode while you're there. <laughs> but it's just Detroit. No I've one been cares. through Denver, but yeah, that's <laughs> My best uh, friend lives in Golden, which is near Denver, and I'm supposed to go visit her. So, like, when there. I do, I'm gonna, like, fucking get oh, into yeah. it. The Denver airport is very nice, and it is pretty easy to get around. Is yeah. that the one with the demon horse, or is that yep. a different yes. one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah so That's the demon horse, the secret underground air- airport, the, like, fucking horrific paintings, religious yep. paintings everywhere. Yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. It Portland has like a the place that would have oh. like caverns underneath it. Yeah, so yeah. You get in there and you're like, "Oh no, what is underneath all of this?" It's the comet ping pong of airports. It's like <laughs> <laughs> everyone thinks what? there's something nefarious going on there. Oh, I've got a fish update.
Yes. Hi, fish. Hello. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> a shrimp that I got, I told you before, we're pregnant. Yes. Um, and at some point a couple weeks ago, it looked like the eggs had all hatched. Uh, I saw two baby shrimp, like, early on, but then I just didn't see any forever. I was like, fuck, did they all just die? Mm. And I realized that, um, looks like all my shrimp are female. I was like, well, shit, oh. I can't even make new ones. But then this morning, I was looking in there, and I counted eight baby shrimp. Baby shrimp! So I'm sure one of them is going to be male. And then we can start the sexing when they grow up. <laughs> <laughs> How long does it take them to get to adult? Um, I think it's two months for full maturity. Holy shit nuggets. That's quick. That's yeah. so fast. Yeah. You have an entire biosphere in your aquarium, and I love it. As long as they stay alive. <laughs> as long as they stay alive, yes. Did I hear a cat? Yeah, you're hearing... Oh. Oh, buddy. Oh, his girlfriend's outside. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay, so there's this cat. <laughs> oh, God. So the other night, Nathan and I are in, um, in bed, like, watching TV, like we usually do at the end of the night. And um, we start hearing this yowling outside. Oh, no. We're like, what the fuck is this? And then, like, we'd earlier seen this uh, poster about a missing cat that kind of looked like Jake and Courtney's cat. Um, like, it, I was like, okay, it looks like a young Schrodinger. And mm -hmm. on the poster, it said that it was half shaved because it just had a vet appointment. Aww. So okay, so like Nathan says, like, "Oh yeah, I see a cat." I'm like, does it look like a young shorter? He's like, "Kind of." And he, I'm like, "Does it look like it's half shaved?" He's like, "Maybe." And so like he goes out there, um, and um, it, it isn't that it isn't the missing cat. It's this big fat cat that um is just sitting there yelling. Oh gosh. Um, and does not give a fuck at all. Like we went right up to it. Jesus. And it's just Aww. sitting there, they're yelling. <laughs> And she's big and fat. And I'm like, oh, maybe she's pregnant. I don't know. And like, we yeah. texted the landlord. I'm like, hey, does this cat look familiar to you? And he's like, oh, the fat raccoon tail cat. Nope. I've seen her <laughs> around. I don't know anything about her, though. And we're like, okay, well, she's probably not a stray. Because, you know, she, yeah. she's very fat and um, looks clean and healthy and stuff. Anyways. So, yeah, she sat outside our We're like, okay, well, I guess we'll just whatever and go back to her life. And, like, she sat outside our window for, like, well over an hour. Oh just kind God. of this mournful yowling kind of thing. It's like, oh. oh. <laughs> and, they, and all the cats are just sitting there looking at her. Like, they're not reacting in any way other than just, like, watching. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And she's coming around the last the last couple nights. Um, huh. And then, yeah, she was around this morning again. And I guess she's now out there right now, because I can hear, hear her yelling. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know if she's we could, she's our cat's girlfriend. They all just, whenever she shows up, they just all sit there and watch her. <laughs> we should just open up the front door and see what happens. Yeah, that would go great. Yeah, I think that's gonna. That, I think that's gonna end in tears. <laughs> yeah. We also don't know if she has like fleas or anything too. So true. <laughs> she could be pregnant. Well, that's what we were kind of thinking, but then um, we were looking at her stomach today, and it kind of looked kind of like the skin looked really saggy. So it's like maybe she oh. was pregnant at some point. Okay. I, I don't know. I just I don't know how to identify a pregnant cat. So I'm gonna yeah. look into this. I don't know. Yeah. Or she's just hopefully well loved and chunky because someone loves her. Because <laughs> she goes and harasses all the neighbors. Because <laughs> she yeah, <laughs> food, food. 
Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if you can hear her in the background right now. Yep. You can? Yeah, uh, just a tiny bit. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is our thing now. Gosh.